Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thanks so much for stopping by the Top Docs Radio Show today. We featured our longtime friend of the show this week, Dr. Ellie Campbell of Campbell Family Medicine. Her office is located off Exit 13 in Cumming, Georgia. She's a primary care physician and an integrative medicine specialist. And I got to tell you, over the past year, every time she's come in, I've learned something new that amazes me. This week is no different. We've talked about a number of different topics from gut health and just how extensively it affects our overall wellness. And we talked about the fact that cholesterol is widely believed to be the culprit in heart disease, stroke, and vascular disease, but it's getting a bad rap that's not quite accurate. And this week, I'm really pleased to bring this conversation to you because it might just help you or somebody that you care about be able to take action and prevent yourself from developing diabetes. We're talking about pre-diabetes in this conversation. And every year when you go to your doctor and get that blood drawn and one of the lab values is glucose, it's called a fasting glucose because, as you know, they tell you not to eat or drink anything after 10 o'clock the night before so that you will have had 10 or 12 hours of time go by where you've not consumed any kind of calories. If your blood glucose level falls into a range that's between 80 and 100, which is still considered normal, it may indicate that you are starting to creep into the range of developing diabetes, and it's an early warning sign that if you pay attention to it, you might just be able to head that off and prevent yourself or your loved one from developing diabetes to begin with. And obviously, if we get to the phase where we are diabetic, then that opens us up to a host of health problems from blindness to heart disease, stroke, amputations, you name it, it's a it's a bad deal to have, and who wouldn't want to head that off if they have a chance? Coming up, here's Ellie talking about why we need to pay attention to what is otherwise known as a quote-unquote normal lab value. Check it out. If you look at the other end of it, the diagnosis of diabetes, when I was in medical school, you weren't diagnosed diabetic until you were blood sugar fasting above 200. Then, by the time I was finishing my residency, they dropped that to 140. A few years into practice, they dropped that to 126. So you can see that the diagnostic cutoff for the diagnosis code of diabetes is getting lower and lower and lower, and it will probably drop to 100 eventually. And the reason for that is, I guess, the evidence is beginning to show that those Organ problems, damage. Yeah, the, the, the things that happen from it happen even at those lower levels that's that you're right talking about. Um, because glycosylated proteins proteins that have sugar stuck on them malfunction I see. and they don't operate well in the tiniest organs of our body and those tiny blood vessels are the ones that have the right. first sets of damage and that's where your eyes your coronary arteries your brain your kidneys and okay. your genitals are perfused Hence, all those complications of diabetes from that tiny organ damage. The mindset has to change among the physicians because among my colleagues, too many of them use that 126 number. I have a colleague who's an endocrinologist and a friend of mine was seeing her as a patient and I said, you know, his blood sugar's been 110 the last few times I've measured it. And she said, oh, don't worry about that. When his blood sugar becomes 126, send him to me and I'll help his diabetes. (laughs) Right. So we have to change the mindset because that's the traditional diagnostic mindset. Once you have a disease, I can treat you. And there's a fewer, although growing number of clinicians like myself who want to intervene in those 
pre-disease states. Sure. So that's the first thing I want is to change the mindset and to recognize that pre-diagnosis, you can have an impact. Are you as intrigued as I was? Stick around. We got the full interview with Ellie Campbell talking about pre-diabetes coming up next. I'm sitting down with Ellie Campbell of Campbell Family Medicine in Cumming, Georgia. And Ellie's joined us on the show a number of times talking about a host of different topics um, around wellness and things that we can do to take better care of ourselves, heart disease and different uh, gut health, a number of different topics. One of the things we were talking about recently, Ellie, is diabetes and and even almost more importantly, pre-diabetes, because apparently in the process of of developing diabetes, there's an early phase where we can do some interventions that could potentially head off diabetes that many times gets overlooked. So I appreciate you taking some time out of the office day to sit down with us for a few minutes and talk about pre-diabetes and what exactly that is. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. I love talking about things that people can do to prevent the need to see me because truly, you know, the doctor of the future will prescribe little medicine. And one of the ways that we can do that is not by not letting people get disease. And diabetes is a continuum. I mean, there's there's primarily two types of diabetes. We're only going to talk about the prevention of type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition, um, usually caused by a genetic predisposition. Autoantibodies attack the pancreas. It stops making insulin. Those people need to take insulin for the rest of their lives. I have tricks for that too, but it's outside the scope of today's discussion. Sure. So we're going to talk about the type 2 diabetic, which is the everyday old man's diabetes, right? The middle-aged guy with the spreading belly and the rising blood sugar. Diabetes is really the tip of the iceberg, and the pre-diabetic condition is that big giant chunk that's floating under the surface. And we know that diabetes predisposes people to not only sudden death, cardiovascular disease, blindness, kidney failure, amputation, and we don't want those things to happen to the people that we care about if we can help it. And it's a continuum. Those things don't happen when your blood sugar is... 126, the cutoff of diabetes. They begin to happen anywhere above normal blood sugar. And normal blood sugar fasting should be 70 to 80. Most people don't know that. They think that because the lab says normal's up to 100, that they don't need to worry about it until their blood sugar's higher than 100. And that's really not true. Those are the pre-pre-diabetics. I see. So there's even a... An early phase to pre-diabetes. There is. So it's a continuum of normal to a little abnormal to a little more abnormal to a lot abnormal to diabetes. I've I've already learned something because even myself, I was thinking once we started getting up past 100, 105, whatever they say the normal is for a given place, that at that point when you're starting to see fasting blood sugars that start to exceed that top end normal range. Right. That's when we start to think about it. But what you're saying is that if we're fasting for a number of hours, eight or 10 hours or more, then we should be in that 70, 80 range pretty much every time. Unless Absolutely. Unless we got something going on. Right. And if, if you look at the other end of it, the diagnosis of diabetes, when I was in medical school, you weren't diagnosed diabetic until you were blood sugar fasting above 200. <laughs> Then, by the time I was finishing my residency, they dropped that to 140. A few years into practice, they dropped that to 126. So you can see that the diagnostic cutoff for the diagnosis code of diabetes is getting lower and lower and lower, and it will probably drop to 100 eventually. And the reason for that is, I guess, the evidence is beginning to show that those Organ problems, damage. Yeah, the, the, the things that happen from it happen 
even at those lower levels that's that you're right. talking about. Um, because glycosylated proteins, proteins that have sugar stuck on them, malfunction. I see. And they don't operate well in the tiniest organs of our body. And those tiny blood vessels are the ones that have the right. first sets of damage. And that's where your eyes, your coronary arteries, your brain, your kidneys, and okay. your genitals are perfused. Hence, all those complications of diabetes from that tiny organ damage. Okay, so for for the person out there that's listening, whether they're, because you know, some of them are physicians and some of them are just your ordinary citizens out there that are tuned in to, to hear what we're talking about on a given week, what should we be thinking about as it relates to we're, we're going in, say we're doing what we ought to do and then seeing a good physician like yourself or another primary mm-hmm. care doctor out there at least, I would say at least once a year, more frequently. At least. If they've well, got once a year history. is probably good, depending on their risk factors. And so when they get the labs drawn, when should we start thinking something should be changed? Well, first of all, I think the mindset has to change among the physicians because among my colleagues, too many of them use that 126 nor- number. I have a colleague who's an endocrinologist, and a friend of mine was seeing her as a patient, and I said, you know, his blood sugar's been 110 the last few times I've measured it. And she said, oh, don't worry about that. When his blood sugar becomes 126, send him to me, and I'll help his diabetes. <laughs> Right. So we have to change the mindset because that's the traditional diagnostic mindset. Once you have a disease, I can treat you. And there's a fewer, although growing number of clinicians like myself who want to intervene in those pre-disease states. Sure. So that's the first thing I want is to change the mindset and to recognize that pre-diagnosis you can have an impact. And so for the doctors, because I mean, so many times when we're having conversations about different things um, that may seem, uh, I don't know if cutting edge is the right word, but a new way of thinking. Yes. Everybody wants to talk about evidence. Yes. Is there evidence that says that we should be thinking about this differently? Because each time they dropped the numbers, I'm sure there was some sort of clinical evidence that was emerging. So. Do you have some that somebody could maybe take a peek at? We do. So, for example, there um, there's a study, and this is in Dr. David Perlmutter's book, um, Brain Maker, um, that when you have hemoglobin A1Cs above 5.2, the brain begins to shrink. Hmm. Most of us want as much cognitive function as we can going into our older ages, and the evidence is leaning that the glycoproteins in the brain that cause these neurofibrillary tangles that we recognize as amyloid beta protein, right? The, the protein that causes Alzheimer's disease is triggered by blood sugars in the brain. We don't want to get neurofibrillary tangles in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease now often being called diabetes type 3, I did not know that either. We do not want that. And if we can keep our hemoglobin A1C below 5.2, we're going to have a better chance at that. So that's well below the threshold of everybody's diabetes diagnosis, which is above 6. And if I get up around 6, what's my blood sugar usually looking like if I'm doing... Yeah, a 6 correlates to a blood sugar of about 130. Okay. So... Talking about 5.2, then we're going to be looking at levels that are somewhere down closer to 105, 100. yeah. 110. Yeah. So, All right. So, so there is evidence out there. Where, where would somebody? What should, what should they be looking for if they want to? If they want to test your, okay. test what you're saying right. here, and so, they want to get on so the computer. The trick is, first of all, you know how to search Google. Sure. Okay. So, so if you go to Google, there's the little. Um, 
nine dot matrix in the upper mm -hmm, right hand mm -hmm. corner. Click on that. Then look where it says more and then click to even more and a whole bunch of Google search tools are going to pop up that you never knew existed. Okay. One of those is Google Scholar. When you search Google Scholar, you're going to eliminate all the trash and all the ads sure. and all the, okay. the gunk and you're only going to come up with um, uh, peer-reviewed journal articles okay. in the legal field or the medical field and you can search by years. So put your subject matter in the search bar of Google Scholar and Google type 3 diabetes, Google Alzheimer's and hemoglobin A1C, Google glycoproteins and brain disease. And if I were to look up prediabetes, would that be something or that's pre mentioned? Or prediabetes. Okay. And you'll start to find all, more than you could ever read in a day. Okay. So in for a lifetime, probably. physician partners out there, we're hopeful that someone will take us up on this uh, challenge, yeah. if you will, to go dig around and, and look into some of the literature that's out there that's emerging that says right. we should start trying to change our patients' behaviors well before they hit 100 on their fasting glucose levels. Exactly right. And a couple of interesting things, too. There's a significant gender difference. When men manifest abnormal blood sugar, the first thing to go is their fasting blood sugar. It begins to climb. Women, however, tolerate their fasting blood sugars very well, but we do not handle a carbohydrate load. So where our blood sugar will climb is in the two-hour postprandial reading. Okay. You will miss it in most women if you only do uh, fasting blood sugar. You need to do a two-hour glucose tolerance test for women to identify the earliest stages of impaired glucose tolerance. How long, if I'm pre-diabetic, how long do I have to be pre-diabetic pushing levels that are in that 80 to 100 range before my A1C moves? A lot depends on your lifestyle and how you're managing it, but presuming that you do little, statistically 7 to 12 years. Okay, so so clearly we want to try to do that study that tests my glucose or if I'm a female, not long after I've eaten. And there's some mounting after. evidence that for men as well that you will cap, you'll have a cast a wider net and you'll find more cases of people who do not tolerate a glucose load, and you'll know then who to put on a low carb diet. And so for the patient who may be listening, because I have a feeling that in many cases it's going to be a situation where the patient themselves or a loved one needs to be doing the, the pushing yes. for some of these tests, because I'm sure they're going to be told, no, that, you know, because clearly we're, we're trying to educate a, both sides of the, the fence here. We're trying to educate our peers yes. uh, as well as the, the patient. So there's going to be some number of respected physicians that are saying, oh, no, 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 you're just fine. So if I want to advocate for myself, then I want to ask for a Two-hour glucose tolerance test. Okay. And few doctors will argue with that. It's not exactly a pleasant test. You have to fast for 12 hours. You come to the doctor's office. You get blood drawn from your arm. You have to drink a nasty sugar water that in many cases will make you a little lightheaded or queasy. Mm. And then you have to have blood drawn at one hour and two hours after you drink the sugar water. We keep our patients for three hours and we extend the test to a three-hour test because we often will find hypoglycemic patients at that point. No matter whether you have a two-hour or a three-hour test, make sure you bring a snack with you because the second that last blood test is drawn, you're going to want to eat something, mm -hmm. preferably a good quality protein, some quality fat, a highly complex carbohydrate so that your blood sugar doesn't drop out and you don't feel weak and woozy. So if I'm, if, if I'm a patient who's listening, when should I begin con contemplating at least one of these periodically? Well, 
Anybody with a family history needs okay. to be complicating so this. So if somebody has diabetes in my past, then I need to think about doing this type of study that you're talking about. Correct. That gets me both a fasting and then after a yes. glucose challenge. Anybody who's overweight or obese okay. needs to contemplate this. Okay. Anybody who has a HDL cholesterol below 30 needs to comp- contemplate this. Anybody who has triglycerides above 150 needs to contemplate this. Anybody who has high blood pressure defined as pre-hypertension or hypertension, any reading above 120 above 80, 120 over 80 or higher, you need to contemplate having a two-hour glucose tolerance test. Okay. Oh, this is like, who isn't one of these people, right? (laughs) There's a lot of them out there, clearly. But the upside is if we can get some people educated and they begin, then hopefully we can take the next couple of minutes and say, all right, let's let's assume we went through these tests Mm -hmm. and they came back showing... Pre-diabetes. What we're talking about is Oh my gosh, she's right. I do have it. Yeah, I have so, trouble handling so now sugar. What? All right. So remember that really fasting blood sugar, blood sugar is really only the symptom of the underlying condition. And the underlying condition is a problem of an insulin blood sugar mismatch and a cellular insensitivity to the insulin signaling mechanism to lower your blood sugar. So it's not pulling the sugar into it's the cells. It's not pulling the sugar into the cells. Okay. It's like when you have... Um, a room full of screaming kindergartners, and pretty soon you don't even hear the screaming anymore. Well, the same happens at a cellular level. There's so much insulin knocking around, the cells stop hearing it, and they don't let the blood sugar into the cell. It stays in the bloodstream instead of being metabolized. Okay. And glycates all, all of those protein okay. and causes all the damage. Okay. So we have to resensitize the cells. The number one best way to do that is exercise. Most of us don't do enough. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, di- there was a study um, uh, several years ago in which they compared the use of metformin, a diabetic drug, exercise, and nothing to see what would happen to patients who uh, were pre-diabetic. They were diabetic. Many of these were diabetic during pregnancy. After they delivered, they became, quote, undiabetic. But they were at risk for becoming diabetic. So they put them on exercise, metformin or nothing, and tracked them over time. And metformin reduced the chances of becoming diabetic by uh, almost 50%. But exercise did better. Exercise reduces the risk of of becoming diabetic. So that one simple thing is defined as walking 30 minutes, five days a week. I was going to ask what what qualifies as as exercise. 30 minutes. And that's about 10,000 steps. Yeah, it's about (laughs) 10,000 steps. So all those people with those Fitbits and pedometers, that's where that 10,000 step number came. Okay. So... So that's one thing. The other thing that we can do is to make sure you're not having blood sugar swings. The one meal determines the rate of blood sugar rise for the next two meals. So especially in the morning, eating a low carbohydrate breakfast with protein, protein at every meal and protein at breakfast is the most important, will keep your blood sugar steady through breakfast and lunch. Now I've been getting into steel cut oats now is that a is that a good thing or no i was thinking it was because of the fiber content it's probably fiber 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 that's one of the strategies to keep your blood sugar under control okay for many people the answer is yes steel cut oats are a great food um they're uh 
a whole grain, which is what we always want to do is consume whole grains. They are a carbohydrate, and right. for some people, they, the serving size is too high. They think that uh, a huge bowl of oatmeal is a really good thing for me, and the serving size is about a cup, which is not much. Also, it shouldn't be that kind that comes in an envelope with uh, <laughs> That's sugar right. That's and right. bits of dried fruit and marshmallows. <laughs> the kind I'm talking about <laughs> takes literally about 20 minutes or so That's to, to cook it That's the kind you want to be eating, yeah. Um, and I'm assuming that I probably shouldn't be loading it up with like brown sugar or something like Correct. that. Correct. <laughs> you should not be loading it up with brown sugar because it's Is it added okay to sugars. use something like honey or something um, like that? A the little best bit of, sweetener no? is probably stevia. So stevia is an okay. all natural plant sweetener without calories. It doesn't oh, okay. have the dangers that some of our artificial sweeteners seem to have. If you absolutely have to have a sweetener in it that's natural, I'd recommend you choose honey or maple syrup. Okay, or stevia. Or stevia, you know, but stevia is a non-caloric sweetener. Honey and is that like in a packet or a pourable? It's, it's in a packet, or okay. um, usually there um, looks like sugar. Looks like oh, looks like sugar. Okay. It doesn't quite taste like sugar, but it is a sweetener. But something like eggs or fruit or something like that, I guess, would be again. You really have to good. be careful with the fruit and the mm. portion size and the car- and the carbohydrate load. So mm. for most people they're eating too much okay um so eggs would be a great thing and to be honest the easiest breakfast that i tell people is dinner think about what it was that you had for dinner that was high in protein low in carbohydrate my kids laugh at me and say mom you're the only person who eats chicken and broccoli for breakfast (laughs) like actually i'm not the only one but it was in the refrigerator it was faster to heat that up than it was to make steel cut oats sure i like it and it's good for me. So that's a great way to get my sh- my day started with a low glycemic, high protein breakfast. I had no idea that, that the impact of my response to carbohydrates for, for basically more or less the rest of the day is controlled Dependent by, that by breakfast. Wow. That's that's news. So yeah. we're getting some great information now. Any other any other tips that we need to leave? Oh, folks there's with? so many. Um, one that's very important. I think um, I discussed this with you on my cardiovascular talk. Mm-hmm. We talked about the best diet for preventing heart disease is the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Well, I've since learned that I was wrong twenty percent oh. of the time. Okay. And I didn't know that I was wrong, but now I do. If you have a specific genetic mutation and your genes are this uh, are a gene called ApoE22 and you have the I'm sorry ApoE44 if you have the genetic mutation for the f- two copies of 4 in your genotype you must be on a low fat diet less than 20% of your diet has to come from fat that is not the mediterranean diet which is high in fat nuts seeds oils so if you have apoe44 and i've now since our last conversation i've been testing all my patients for their apoe genotype because their diet matters mm. apoe44 people should rarely drink alcohol which is not in the mediterranean diet the mm-hmm. mediterranean diet recommends alcohol one or two drinks depending on your gender um so how many is that something that somebody would know most likely or, or not? no it's something you specifically have to ask about and you okay. can google it high fat diet and meta and apoe or um apoe44 subtype and diet you can look it up there's all kinds of research that have been done in this regard it was just news to me because i was so um well versed in the mediterranean diet and i was so surprised to learn that that exception so to recap real quickly for our physician friends out there if our patient's coming back with something on a fasting glucose level that's higher than 80 then we should probably make some action corrective actions with increasing their exercise 
and recommending that they start making some dietary changes. Like you say, if they're not APOE, 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 they need to be on a high fat, high complex carbohydrate, high protein diet. So APOE44. If they're not APOE44, then Mediterranean diet is ideally the the one they want to go. Okay. And so if I'm a patient, then starting to exercise, which is at least walking at least 30 minutes a day. Correct. How many times a week? Five days a week. Five days a week. Or more. Ideally, Mediterranean-type diet, which yes. you can easily find information about on the, online or, or in a book. And there's a couple of tricks about diet, too. We've briefly mentioned some of these before. Um, besides high in fiber, we want an anti-inflammatory diet and a diet that's high in antioxidants. That means brightly colored fruits and vegetables. You should have a whole rainbow of colors on your plate every day. For some people, certain types of foods are inflammatory beyond our scope today, but I'll just mention that some people are very sensitive to histamine in foods. Other people have immune reactions to foods, both IgG-type food sensitivities, IgA-type gluten reactions, and IgE true food allergies. If you have one of those, there are certain foods you should not be eating, even though they're good for everybody else. Um, Another Uh, secret is um, nightshade plants. Tomatoes, Mm -hmm. potatoes, peppers, and eggplants are inflammatory foods to very many people. And so if you're that subtype, even though tomatoes and eggplant are very healthy and high in antioxidants, if they're triggering an inflammatory reaction in you, we want to steer clear of them. So it sounds like what we need to do next time is sit down and talk a little bit about inflammatory foods and how we can find out if we're reacting to it in those ways and uh, make some recommendations around that. Sounds like a subject for the next talk. We've been talking with Dr. Ellie Campbell, primary care and uh, longtime uh, guest of the show at Top Docs, and always shares some excellent information. I've learned several things in our time today. I hope you have, too. And uh, go on to uh, to Google and do what she said. Google go Scholar. The right hand to find Google Scholar and do some searching on your own. Ask for the, uh, the postprandial or the two-hour glucose challenge test if you've got some risk factors for being uh, somebody that might develop diabetes and may be able to head that off way before you get to the past. be more proactive than your doctor because they're (laughs) going to wait until you're diabetic. That's right. And there's going to be some times where you have to push the doctor along and we're trying to help empower everybody with the information that they can to advocate for themselves or or for their loved ones. So, Ellie, I really appreciate you taking some time to share this great information. Absolutely my pleasure. Well, we'll see you back here on the show, I'm sure, in a few weeks. Great. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. And if you're checking out the show by podcast today and you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page to the Apple logo. That'll take you over to the iTunes store at the Top Docs Radio Show podcast and subscribe to us. That way, when the new podcast comes up, it gets downloaded straight to your device. You can check us out while you're driving to work, walking the dog, or working out, whatever the case may be for you. I just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your day today. Your time is important to us, and I'm hopeful that you'll turn around and share this information with your social media networks because, obviously, it's got some great information that might just help somebody that you care about. So how cool would that be? And I hope you have a great rest of your week. Make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 